Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, beat writer Susan Slusser, and today, pitcher Andrew Triggs, who's competing for a rotation spot this spring, joins us to talk about his long road to the big leagues. Then Dustin Garneau tells us about what he is currently watching or re-watching and what he's reading lately. And finally, John Shea and I will discuss the A's rotation and A.J. Puck's future. Today on A's Plus, we welcome A's starter Andrew Triggs to the program. Um, Andrew is entering his third season with the A's, and he's one of the six men fighting for um, three rotation spots. Andrew, how are you feeling this spring, and, and how do you evaluate what you've done so far? I'm feeling really good. So, really coming off of a uh, of a surgery that had a you know the prognosis was six to seven months of of rehab before you're cleared and good to go and I pretty much felt you know the week before camp opened was when I was more or less cleared uh, you know to go full blow I wasn't really sure where everything was going to be because once you get out there and you're doing the PFPs and you're throwing off the mound and you know doing all the little things that uh, we do you don't really know how it's going to react so first off I wanted health to be there and then second I wanted to make sure my stuff was following suit and so I feel like I've stayed kind of on that progression and I feel really good. Um, would you say that you're back to where you were pre-surgery? Because obviously I think everyone remembers you were, you were actually the A's best starter last April. Yeah, no, I, I'm feeling that way. So last time out, I was really happy with you know, how both my breaking balls were working and my fastball command, I think, was coming around as I got deeper into the outing. Um, you know, there weren't any more innings to pitch in that game because I threw at the end, but I feel like if I had a fourth and a fifth, things would have progressed even more. So, um, you know, I, as far as, you know, where I was last year, you know, I felt fantastic, and, and at this moment, too, I feel really, really good. So, really, it's it's about consistency and health and staying on top of everything else. So, uh, I'm really encouraged, but I'm trying to keep blinders on and really just think about the next day, the next outing and such. But uh, right now, I'm, I'm very pleased with where I am. Now, tell us a little bit more about your hip surgery and what it involved. You, you had it last July uh, in Colorado, and what exactly it was Dr. Mark Philippon, who I'm not sure people realize is like the, the rock star of hip yeah, hip he's, surgeons. He's the hip guru. So he did Mark Canna's, and he also did Sean Manaya's uh, a few years ago, right after Sean got drafted. And so, um, yeah, it was it was a torn labrum in there, so it's sort of a basic labrum repair that you know some guys get in the shoulder as well, where they go in and they anchor down the labrum just to you know try to smooth it over the capsule in there, and then also they do shave down part of the femur, which causes some of that you know rupturing and hitting on the joint itself. And so, um, you know, I knew when I was going to have to have the surgery that. It was really a no-brainer in my mind, and there were a couple other doctors out there who were recommended to me that have also done the surgery, and I'm sure fantastic, but just for peace of mind, it meant a lot just knowing that I had two guys in the clubhouse who'd been with him and gone through that process, and Brian Schulman, our rehab coordinator, he had been down the road with those guys too and coordinated really well with their medical staff. So, um, you know, go back to the original question, yeah, it was just sort of a basic labor repair, and then... You know, you say they shaved down the femur, which makes it sound a lot more grisly than it is. But, you know, thankfully I wasn't awake for that part. And it was sore afterwards, but it was, you know, a fairly straightforward rehab. And the whole team here that I worked with here in Arizona and then Shulman up in uh, Oakland were fantastic. So 
And how long were you on crutches? Because it seemed like a while to me. It must have seemed like an eternity for you. It seemed even longer to me. So getting off the crutches and then getting uh, getting out of the CPM, which is the you know perpetual motion machine that you had to sleep with every night that kind of has your leg sort of locked into a harness and you're moving extremely slowly throughout the night because I guess that expedites the healing instead of, you know, for seven or eight hours having your leg just static, you know, a week or two after surgery isn't the best. So uh, I was in that machine, I think, for three weeks or so. And then the crutches, I think it felt like about a month or so, but it, it felt like eight months. So I, it was that was really the worst part of it. And then once I was able to kind of move around with some normalcy and then start doing, you know, some weight room activities and then you know, thank goodness once baseball activities started, it was, I mean, that's really what every rehab is like, you know, it's it's sort of that stair step, and once you get closer and closer and closer to normalcy, it gets easier and easier and more encouraging, so if you can if you can gut it out through those first few months, it, it sort of is a downhill ride from there. I'm sort of astonished by this perpetual motion machine, yeah. I did not know that that was a thing, yeah, was, um, and how do you, how could you, it was scary you, too, scary looking at least. How do you sleep while your leg is moving? You sleep poorly, I mean, that's really it, so. So it's it's hard. Uh, I, I slept really really badly for, uh, for the three or four weeks when I had that thing. So it was it was not good. But you know, it, I'm I'm here now and my arm, my leg feels great. So it, you know, it must have worked. Now you started off last season um, five and two with a two one two ERA, and you, you opened the season with a seventeen and two thirds scoreless inning streak. Uh, after that great start, you were then zero and four with a nine six four ERA. How much of that, in retrospect, maybe had to do with with your hip potentially, you know, kind of starting to be a problem? I think it had something to do with it for sure. I mean, I I, I would really chalk it up to those last two outings where I really started to feel it. Uh, you know, mostly in Tampa, uh, I was really feeling it. Um, quite a bit out there and then sort of in the second half of that outing at home against the Nationals at home uh, which was the outing before I was feeling it but really my ears kind of perked up and I thought okay this might be something more than just you know normal in-season stiffness in my side session between uh, those two outings but you know you deal with so many little aches and pains throughout the year and we've all been doing this for a while you know going back to high school college travel ball minor leagues that I can't tell you how many times something's bugging you and it's kind of there for a couple weeks and then you work through it and then it just disappears. And so I was hopeful it was that, but I started getting more concerned when it wasn't going away and it was in fact getting worse. But I, I think it certainly factored, but you know, I had a stinker of an outing at home against the Red Sox that had nothing to do with it. Um, you know, I had, I had an outing in New York where you know, I gave up the, the grand slam uh, in that rough, I think it was a third inning and then finished with three scoreless. and. It had nothing to do with it there, but, um, you know, I think those last two it factored, but, um, you know, I, I just wasn't as sharp, and that's sort of the the peaks and valleys and the lulls of the season, so I, there's no way I can, I'm going to chalk up, you know, every bad outing to something physical being out there. Sometimes you're just not locating well, or sometimes you are, and they're just hitting it, so I think it factored, but it wasn't the main factor, I don't think. Now, you do have a unusual mechanics in the wake of the hip surgery. Was there any discussion at all about maybe changing a few things to, to either smooth out your mechanics or do something a little differently? I think there, there were kind of secondary discussions. Um, not so much, you know, from the rehab side or on the, you know, baseball field staff side um, about changing things. But, you know, the idea was, you know, maybe this isn't, the best thing but at the end of the day we fixed it and also I mean you're going to kind of go down swinging with who you are and so you know as of the day I'm 29 years old so 
you know, are you going to go back and sort of, you know, reinvent the wheel on your own delivery? I mean, some people might be able to do that, but for me, I, I just didn't think that was feasible. And, you know, I, I have a lot of faith and trust in our medical staff here and then the people that fixed me in Colorado that, you know, I don't anticipate it being an issue further so long as I stay on top of what I have to do. And, um, you know, I, I, I like the path that we're on. And, you know, I, did, I didn't think it was the most prudent thing in the world to go in there and really fundamentally change who you are and how you pitch. And all of a sudden I'm a, you know, over-the-top, straight-on, you know, delivery guy, you know, throwing four-seamers and overhand curveballs. So that's just not me. Well, we talked a lot last year um, about how you did kind of become the pitcher that you are. It was a long road for you, as you mentioned, you're 29. Uh, and you had an unusual path sort of from the get-go. You had Tommy John surgery while you were still in high school. You weren't recruited much. And then things really sort of took off for you when you went to rehab from the UCL with, right. with Dr. Tom House. Tell us a little bit about that, about your, your kind of unusual journey, but especially working with Tom House as a as a kid, really, recovering from a UCL repair. Yeah, honestly, it was... It, I remember having the discussion with my parents. I was probably you know, 16 years old when I originally heard it. It was 2006, April of 2006, when I originally heard it, and uh, it was a, it was a serious discussion of you know, do you even bother with going through with the rehab, or do you I just you know, apply to colleges and become a regular student and pursue something else? Um, but you know, I I enjoyed baseball obviously a lot, and I had some success you know at, the, at a relatively low level, and I thought you know what might as well. And um, so once I went down that road, a pitching coach who I'd worked with in Nashville recommended, you know, I go see Tom House, who was a pitching coach uh, running private camps in San Diego. And so you know, my parents were unbelievably fantastic and supportive and, you know, allowed me to go out there. And, you know, in hindsight, I don't know what they were even thinking, letting me, you know, make that leap. But essentially, you know, I have a car in San Diego and the other part side of the country with, you know, no access, pre-smartphone. So they let me. And it was, it honestly was really what, you know, kick-started everything and obviously sort of falling backwards into the USC opportunity because he got the job while I was there. But um, really in terms of just gaining perspective on, you know, what I might have a chance to do in this game, you know, you'd see, you know, big leaguers come and work out and throw a bullpen on occasion. You sort of get to shadow them and see what they do, what their routines are and how they go about throwing bullpens. And, you know, you throw, a, you know, a slider for you know, a strike or where you wanted to, let's say four out of 10 times at that age, and they would do it seven out of 10. And you go, well, you know, I'm a mediocre high school pitcher coming off of surgery. And, you know, this is a major leaguer. You know, he's clearly better, but it's not that, you know, it's not that big of a leap. He's, I mean, I'm not even close to where he is, but that sort of planted the seed in my head that, okay, maybe this could be something. And so as far as perspective and setting sights on something else and creating routines and understanding deliveries it was really invaluable to, to transporting me and you know without that you know Tom is probably one of the most influential people especially at the early part of my career it was still kind of a long road for you even after that after leaving USC um, were there times that you thought about maybe calling it quits oh sure yeah absolutely I mean uh, I, I remember I was pretty much headed back to double a with the Royals um, in 2015, spring training on the minor league side there, and I knew that was a possibility. But um, you know, they were they were you know kind enough to really give me an opportunity to go somewhere else, and you know, allowed me to go uh, you know essentially to Double A with the Orioles, and things really took off again there. Where you know I was going into a protection year, I knew I had to do well, and I knew it. You know, going in, I turned 26 that spring training with the Royals, uh, and I knew going into Double A again for 
I'd been there pretty much the entire year before, part of the season before that, so really a third season in AA. As a 26-year-old, I knew you know, I was going to have to do well if I had any chance whatsoever of getting protected. And so my goal going into that season was, you know, if I don't make a 40-man roster and I don't get Rule 5 draft pick and I don't get an invitation to big league camp, you know, it might be, you know, a time to start thinking about another line of work. And, you know, thankfully I cleared that first hurdle with, you know, they, I had a good enough season where they felt it was necessary to protect me on the 40-man roster, and they did. And one thing led to another, and I wound up here and kept the 40-man roster spot, just not there. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, that was that was just one of several times where, you know, I said, really, is this the best use of my time? And I mean, there were plenty of times where you're on bus rides. And I remember being 23 years old in the Pioneer League. And my first bus trip was, you know, Idaho Falls to, I think, Grand Junction, Colorado. And it was like 13 hours through the night. We finished the game at 11 o'clock. Bus left at midnight. We got in at 1 p.m. And then we played that night. And thankfully, I didn't have to pitch that night. But uh, yeah, there were plenty of times where you're the oldest guy in the team by at least three years. And you're thinking, you know, goodness gracious, you know, what am I, what am I doing? You got friends who have real jobs, they're getting promotions and, you know, getting engaged and, you know, starting lives. And, you know, I'm on a bus again for the third or fourth year. So there were certainly times like that, but I, I just really love baseball. I love being around it. I, I love the game. I love the, the people in it. And so, you know, I, I'm keenly aware that you're really, really fortunate to have a uniform no matter what level you're at. Um, and so long as you're physically able to do it, and so long as you get out of bed and you're excited to go to the field, I think you'd be doing yourself a disservice to, you know, leave before you know your time is up. So, um, sure, I had plenty of times where I certainly thought, "Is this the best use of my time?" But I was kind of able to talk myself off the ledge more than once. So, now your first year with with the A's in 2016, you were a reliever, and you were up and down like crazy. I think they you set an Oakland record with eight trips between. Oakland and Nashville, um, which part of that always amused me because when you were in Nashville, you lived at home with your parents, right. which is really, really unusual um, and kind of great. Um, but you also handled all that yo-yoing really well, which considering what you've gone through, I'm sure, sure you were probably like, hey, I'm just happy to be here whenever you want me. But what, what was that season like for you and how, how crazy was all that travel? It was really fun. I mean, honestly, <laughs> like you said, it made life really easy, you know. Um, my entire family's in Nashville, so yeah, whenever I would... Uh, You'll get a call and more more than once. You know, I knew they were working with four starters and they were going to call up a starter from AAA. And so I would be sort of filling the gap for three or four days. So there was no you know surprise whatsoever when Kurt Young would, you know, come around the corner in the clubhouse and kind of get my attention. I knew I was going down. And I mean, yeah, like you said, after, you know, being 26 in AA the year before, you know, and getting taken off the roster several months before by the Orioles, I mean, you're you're just happy to be, you know, wanted around. And especially if you threw reasonably well, you knew there was a decent chance you'd be back. And, yeah, I mean, there's the yo-yo thing. I mean, you got to earn the right to stick around. And even if you've had some success, you got to earn the right to stay. And, I mean, there really isn't anybody who, you know, becomes a tenured Major League Baseball player. I mean, you got to continually earn the right to stay. And so I'm fully aware of that. And so that year, I mean, yeah, like you said, it, it was made life easy on the other end because I could just leave my stuff there and, you know, it wasn't like you're dealing with, you know, an electricity bill or, you know, rent back in some, you know, town you're not really used to. For me, it was just, all right, I'll just leave my stuff and maybe I'll be back in a week. Maybe I'll be back in a couple of days. Who knows? But Bye, Mom and Dad. Yeah, see you guys. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, was, it was a really fun year, honestly, and I, I really liked it. And we had a great group of guys in Nashville, a great group of guys uh, in Oakland, and I, I'm not being disingenuous when I say I had a, I had a really fun time with it. I mean, it was... It was fun, obviously, to check that box, and you finally do get called up. But then from there, it kind of transitioned. Okay, how can I, 
know, possibly turn this, you know, goal, this achievement into possibly a career and, you know, do this for another 10 years. And so that was kind of the turn there and makes it easier when you're enjoying it. Now, you started to make a, a spot start here and there. They started to talk to you a little bit more about becoming a starter, and you'd been a reliever for, for quite some time at that point. What, what was your thought process there when they first started broaching that idea with you? I was certainly open to it, and I'd, I'd had a couple conversations here and there over the years with different pitching coaches or, or coordinators. You know, and the idea was brought up, but almost every single time it was, ah, well, you know, you're doing well as a reliever. It makes too much sense. You know, why mess with a good thing? And I kind of agreed with them. Um, but, you know, once I got here and there's, there was kind of a need at, at two kind of unique situations, I think there was, you know, the first one was against the Angels, and it was kind of, you know, go, you know, 60 pitches or so, 60-plus, and see where you can get. And then there was another one, uh, I think it was against the Orioles, where I guess there wasn't anyone immediately on the roster. And so I just kind of went for four innings or so. The first three were good, and the, I think I gave up three runs in the fourth against the Orioles. And I thought, okay, well, that's kind of what a reliever would do, right? And then no one said anything after that. And I said, well, all right. And then the two days afterwards, Kurt says, yeah, your bullpen's at, you know, 2 o'clock or something. So, well, okay, I guess we're doing this. All right. Um, and then the next outing was, you know, pretty good. And I went into the sixth inning and, you know, gave up the one run in Texas. And so in my mind, that was when, you know, it's not that I didn't believe in myself at all, but I thought, you know what, I've done this reliever thing, the way I throw my profile is, you know, more of a, you know a Dan Otero, maybe a Matt Belial reliever, um, and so that's sort of where my focus was. And I wasn't the, the starter thing really hadn't entered into my thought process. But after that outing in Texas, I thought, you know what, like maybe there's a chance I can do this. And so you know your sights change, but in my mind, I would love to do this for 10 more years, and I would love to throw 200 innings all 10 years. Um, but you know, in my mind too, if I can. You know, contribute more in bullpen as a long guy, as a you know, guy who's a you know maybe a setup guy at some point, or really any role. I'm I'm happy with that. I'm most useful at. But um, you know, I, I really do enjoy starting. I kind of forgotten how much I enjoyed it all the way back in college, and so it's it's fun to be back with a part of it. So I'm I really not trying to get ahead of myself and think all that much. Like I said earlier, I'm trying to go outing to outing with you know staying on top of my rehab and everything. So um, it's. It's been a, an absolute blast, and I hopefully I can do this for you know, quite a while longer. Now, what do you make of the team? Uh, sort of about you know a little more than halfway through the spring, you're obviously very young, and in fact, you uh, you don't have the most service time among the starters, but you actually among the group of starters, you're the oldest one at 29. Right. You, yeah. Do you does that make you feel like you need to take on any sort of leadership role or anything like that? Do you feel like kind of like the dad? Yeah, <laughs> not quite yet. I don't know. I'm usually clean shaven, so I, I try to hide my age a little bit, but. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's such a good unit. It's fairly cohesive, and, you know, if there is a hierarchy, you know, Kendall's clearly the, the leader of the bunch, you know, as he should be. He's earned the right to do that, and he's fantastic in terms of, you know, organizing pitchers' meetings and getting us out there for bunting and things along those lines. So, you know, he's really the, the leader of this unit. But, uh, it, I mean, we all lean on each other for advice and input, and, you know, I might be able to help someone with one thing and someone else who's got a great changeup might be able to help with that. And so... Uh, it, it's a pretty egalitarian mix, and it's it's been a whole lot of fun. So, uh, you know, I'm excited. Hopefully, uh, you know, I can play an important part of it. And um, I mean, you saw what Paul did last night. You've seen Sean do it, and you know, I'm excited to watch Mengden today. So it's a fun bunch. 
Uh, what about the, the team as a whole? You know, this young core that they're assembling, and I'm assuming any pitcher's got to be pretty happy to have somebody like Matt Chapman behind them, and, and you've seen, you've played with him in Nashville, you've played with him in Nolson at the big league level. What do you think of sort of this this, this young group that's coming up? Sure. No, I mean, it's, it's obviously exciting just on a daily basis, you know, from a macro or micro perspective. If you're looking at macro, I mean, it really is the, the template that a lot of teams have used to have a ton of success. Um, and so, you know, I think it's an exciting times for A's fans and, um, you know, for those that have, you know, kind of had to, to, you know, bite their lip for the last couple of years, um, you know, you look what Houston did, you look what Kansas City did and what Chicago did. This is really what a lot of teams that have, you know, reached the pinnacle have done where they build around a young core of position players and then you fill in, you know, the blanks elsewhere. And so I think you got the two mats at the corners and you got, you know, Simeon anchoring it up the middle and, I mean, it's it's an exciting bunch, you know, Chad Pender all over the place. So um, I'm excited as a baseball fan to watch it. And obviously, as a, you know, from a personal level, it's, there's nothing better than having someone like, you know, Chappie over there at the hot corner. How are you looking forward, much are you looking forward to uh, working with somebody like Jonathan Lucroy, who obviously has a pretty distinguished background? Yeah, I am really a lot. So I, I know I'm throwing a Maxwell tomorrow. Um, and so I, I haven't uh, yet had the opportunity to throw a bullpen or to uh, throw in a game to him, but I'm really excited. And, you know, you, you talk about, you know, someone like Vote even last year where you know, someone who's been around, who's seen all these hitters, and, you know, I like to do a lot of video work and go in there and look at, you know, hitter swings and, you know, certain tendencies they might have. But, you know, whatever I might be able to glean out of an hour or so looking at hitters, you know, he has that, you know, ten times over just by experience and seeing guys. And it might not even be, you know, seeing a particular player, but he, you know, he might see a hitch and a swing or something along those lines, and it just clicks for them, like, hey, this is a good pitch for him. You know, we're going to stay away from that. So I, I'm really excited to work with him, and, uh, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's a wonderful addition. Well, Andrew Chiggs, it's been a pleasure having you on A's Plus, and we look forward to watching you throughout the season. Awesome. Thanks so much. Joining us for Player's Choice today, we have... A's catcher Dustin Garneau. Dustin, what are you currently watching at the moment? Uh, I'm actually re-watching Game of Thrones as much as I can before next year. That, that is absolutely perfect because I'm a big Game of Thrones nut myself. Um, do you have a particular character, particular episode, anything like that that you that you really have enjoyed re-watching? Uh, this last season was pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Jon Snow fan. I'm sure everybody else, is, everybody that watches the show is. Uh, but that last episode's pretty intense. That one and the one before where they take the dragon down is that's pretty pretty good. What's it like rewinding it? Are you are you realizing that either you had forgotten some things that you hadn't seen, or are you seeing things maybe that having watched it the first time through it like takes on maybe some new meaning? I think it's both. I, uh, especially I talked to a couple guys in the locker room after this last season. There's some stuff from the episodes where I missed from the past seasons. So going back and rewatching it, there's so much information in that show that I want to make sure I'm clamped down before this last season starts. <laughs> Now, I know you're a big reader and you also read a lot of things about the military. Do you watch that show and with kind of that knowledge of sort of military um, campaigns and things in mind, especially when it comes to battles? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, just I, I read more more modern history of, of military, but it kind of translates back to then. It's just a little more... Uh, a little more intense when it's on that show, the way it's hand-to-hand -hand more than it is now. <laughs> Very true. What else are you reading at the moment? I know you're a, a Dan Brown fan. What, what's your favorite Dan Brown book? And if you, have you read the new one? 
Uh, I haven't read the new one. I read off the, the Robert Landon books, and then I'm actually in the middle of Decipher Point. Or, no, it's a Deception Point, I'm sorry. It's about the big uh, Alaskan, they're, they found a meteorite in the snow, and it's pretty, it's pretty good. It's starting to get good, actually. <laughs> I always love having a reader in the clubhouse. There aren't always a lot of them, so thanks for joining us today on Ace, Ace Choice. Thank you for having me. now reached the segment of our show called Shea Plus with John Shea, the San Francisco Chronicles national baseball writer. Uh, John, this the A's rotation throughout the spring had been something of a concern, and then Jarrell Cotton goes down with a torn UCL, needs Tommy John surgery. Uh, where do you think that this leads the A's rotation, and what do you think of, of some of the moves that they, they have made since then? Yeah, well, first of all, too bad for Cotton. I saw those four hitless innings against the Giants. He looked he looked great, fantastic, like he's ready to turn the corner. It, it was like his second straight really good outing, and I guess his velocity slowed down at the end, and I, I didn't think there was any possibility of something so severe as Tommy John's surgery watching him pitch that day, but now they're in a bigger hole. They arrived into spring training in a hole, and now it's even bigger, and after Manaya and Graveman, I mean, where do you go? Do you go Triggs, Mengden, Blackburn? I mean, those were kind of uh, op- options, maybe outside options. Maybe one or two of those guys were going to get in. But three? This this could be a situation that uh, maybe could be a, the, the demise of the team. I mean, the, the lineup is so good. The, the bullpen is so good. You just wish that the rotation would live up to everywhere else on the roster. Yeah, and, you know, it's the other thing you mentioned, the bullpen is so good. Well, your bullpen could get worn out really quick if you have rotation issues early in a season. That's one reason that the A's went out and picked up Trevor Cahill. At least he's got some experience, and he can serve maybe even more than anything as a potential swingman kind of guy, eat up innings if the if the rotation is having problems. And make it so that the A's don't have to use somebody like Yusmiro Petit, who's a real weapon in a you know a game the team is up. Uh, maybe Cahill can be the guy who can absorb a lot of uh, innings in a down game. Now the big question of the whole spring with regards to the rotation was AJ Puck. Would he make the opening day roster or not? Certainly there are many good reasons to hold a guy like that back, especially gaining an extra year of service time. But I think ultimately it seemed like they felt he wasn't quite ready. Billy Bean talked about the fact that, uh, you know, this is a guy who hasn't pitched really more than half a year, even at double a, what, what's your take on, on AJ Puck and his situation and when we might see him. Yeah, I saw him a couple times in spring training. He was by far the best starter the first half of spring training. And you're right, it's it's if they're not going to win now, maybe collect the extra year before free agency, prevent him from being a super two in arbitration. That's not to say that any of these people are going to be around in six years when he's up for free agency. But still, that's the kind of the way the A's live. Uh, it's all about the future, and, and it's still that. I mean, nobody really expects them to contend this year, especially with the rotation. But it's uh, it's going to be a fascinating story to see him and Franklin Barreto eventually jump into this roster and maybe become difference makers. With Cahill, I don't know. His, his best work in recent years was out of the bullpen as a setup guy, especially with the Cubs when they won it all in 2016. He started a little bit more last year. His, his ZRA wasn't quite as good as it was in 16. You 
went back and forth with the Padres and what Royals last year. But it, I guess it's a role he could eventually work himself into, but it's not like he has been throwing a lot of innings recently uh, at anybody. So he's obviously not going to crack the season opening rotation, but maybe by May does he work up his durability to, to assume that role? Well, let, let me throw something at you, Susan. What about free agency? I mean, Alex Cobb is available, and – and uh you know, you remember Ben Sheets when they when they got him late for one year and ten million dollars. Uh, Lance Lynn, w- w- the other remaining starter, recently signed with Minnesota, one year and twelve. Now, would the A's throw something like that at Cobb? I'm, I'm guessing Cobb might make a little more than Lynn as the last guy out there, and there's some teams in on him. Maybe he holds out for two years. Maybe the A's wouldn't want to do that. But why not at least look at somebody like that? I mean, Arietta's off the market. Lynn is off the market, and Cobb, a guy who has been throwing his whole life at AL East teams, has had you know decent ERAs, and he's you know last year was kind of his bounce back year after Tommy John surgery. I think that the first issue, um, obviously, with the A's is cost. I mean, it was it took mm-hmm. a, I think, a lot of uh, arm twisting. Uh, to get the payroll added to to add to Jonathan Lucroy, who who was specifically added to also help that rotation and all the question marks as a veteran catcher, uh, I think the A's probably would argue like that that was the move we got to help the rotation right there. But Cobb also comes with a you know losing a draft pick because he got a qualifying offer mm-hmm. and a team mm-hmm. that's rebuilding. I, I think they just feel like you know even even though it's one of the those sandwich type picks, I can't imagine them wanting to give up something that valuable in, in a rebuilding situation. And I, you know, for everything I understand about Cobb, it sounds like he's still looking for more like a four year kind of 40, $48 million deal. I don't know how far that's come down. I just don't see him being in the A's price range. There's not a lot out there. I know. I think Trevor Cahill's more than just a warm body. You know, they like him. They know him. Uh, he was actually the starting pitcher for Bob Melvin's very first game as the A's mm. manager. So so he knows him well. Uh, and, you know, he, he really I really do think he's he's insurance for the current guys if anybody goes down because we know, you know, somebody will. Uh, I think everybody in the A's rotation at one point last year was on the DL. Uh, but he, you know, he also really, he can eat up some innings early in the season and save the bullpen. I think that that right now, that's probably going to be his biggest asset. And who knows? I mean, Triggs has had a decent camp and he was the best starter back in April of last year. Absolutely. And Mengden and Blackburn had really good moments last year. And so maybe you roll the dice with those three guys and you're basically rolling the dice with all five guys. Well, and and Puck uh, could be there, you know, several weeks mm-hmm. to a couple of months into the season. I mean, we will see him at some point. I, I've got absolutely no doubt about that. Now, you had some really um, interesting work recently, um, including one following University of Maryland, Baltimore County's stunning win. <laughs> you did a, an interesting piece on World Series upsets. I, I know um, a- A's fan nation was <laughs> unhappy to see the Kirk Gibson uh, photo as always, but uh, what, what what kind of went into the making of that that story? Oh yeah, it, it, just in my Sunday baseball column, I mentioned some of the greatest baseball upsets in World Series history in the wake of a number sixteen beating a number one, which was never happened in the NCAA's, and we figured those Dodgers of '88 would never beat the A's of '88, the powerhouse that went to the three straight World Series, a dynamic rotation, bullpen and lineup, power and speed, everything you can imagine. And then here comes Hershiser and one swing out of Gibson. It just changed the momentum. 
And they actually lost two of those three, obviously, you know, sandwiched around the sweep of the Giants. I mean, I don't know which one was more of an upset. They expected to win both handedly. I mean, they just breezed through the season and the LCS. And my goodness, it, it's when you look back at that, it could have been a dynasty. I'm not sure one World Series win in three years is a dynasty, but it certainly could have been, if not should have been. But I also mentioned some other uh, the the Marlins of Jack McKeon in 03, uh, you know, beating up on the Yankees with Beckett winning game six at Yankee Stadium and uh, the, the 1960 Pirates team that were outscored 55 to 27, but won game seven on Mazeroski's walk off home run. And uh, of course, the the uh, the Cleveland Indians big favorites over the Giants of 54 after winning 111 and then Mays with the crazy catch at the polo grounds in game one to to create momentum and Dusty Rhodes coming off the bench and uh, supplying big hits. And then uh, I rounded out the top five with everyone's favorite, the 1919 Black Sox, which uh, I don't know if you can call it an upset if they actually threw the World Series, <laughs> but what the heck, it's all in fun and games. Yeah, always fun stuff to, to, to talk about. You also have a mention about... Um, Vladimir Guerrero, Guerrero choosing to go into the Hall of Fame with a an AL West cap rather than his <laughs> original Expos teams. What, what do you think of that when a guy kind of, uh, you know, disregards his his original team and maybe the team that I think the public might remember him best with? Well, A's fans might go back to Reggie Jackson and feel shunned about Reggie going in as a Yankee, even though he played more games in Oakland, uh, won more World Series in Oakland, hit more home runs in Oakland. But he became Mr. October because that's the grand stage in the Bronx. And he wanted to go in as a Yankee. And that was at a time where the player had more say. Now the Hall really has more say as to who goes in uh, representing which team. Um, and the case with Guerrero, and Reggie obviously thought, well, it's going to be a bigger, bigger payday if, I, if I'm a Yankee rather than an A, right? And he's basically... I don't know if it's a lifetime contract, but he's 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 employed with the Yankees and he has been since early in the Steinbrenner uh, administration. But with with Vladimir, I I, th- I spoke with Felipe Alou, his longtime manager in Montreal, and everybody loves the Expos, right? I mean, the Andre Dawson went in and Gary Carter went in. Neither of them really wanted to go in as Expos, but along came Tim Raines, who was all for going in as an Expo. He's he's a favorite and. I think a lot of people in Canada, in particular Montreal, wanted to see Vladimir go in as an expo again, played more games, hit more home runs. But in Anaheim, that's a team that actually exists. And and he, he was a spring, you know, guest instructor with the Angels here this month. Uh, you know, he, he might get a job with the team. They'll, they'll acknowledge and honor him throughout the summer. And the expos are the Nationals and the Nationals don't really care about their, their expos history like the A's actually care about their Philly and Kansas City history. So I guess it was the right decision on his part, but sentimentally and, you know, according to Felipe Alou, he probably should have gone in as an expo. And I agree. You, you, you can never have too many expos in the Hall of Fame. That's for sure. Now, now speaking of the Angels, just real quickly, uh, what are your thoughts on Shohei Otani and the fact that he's really, really struggled throughout the spring? Obviously, so much attention on him. And the A's were expecting to see him in the Angels rotation in one of those first four games of the Coliseum. I assume that will still be the case. But uh, what, what have you made of, of what he's done this spring? Right. Comparisons on the mound to you, Darvish, just haven't played out. I guess he's a better pitcher than hitter uh and maybe we won't see him hitting so much as we thought but 
even on the pitching side, he's getting knocked around. And you would think uh, a year in AAA would actually suit him better, but that's not why he came to the big leagues. He came to the big leagues to pitch in the big leagues and hit in the big leagues. So it's going to be an intriguing story, especially early when we see him. Uh, the A's will you know, start off against him, and you would think that Otani would go game three, game four. Who knows, though, if he continues to struggle. Uh, I, I was hoping to see him in the in the opening day lineup as the DH. That may or may not happen. Um, but I think, uh, I, you know, remember, you, you just go back to Ishiro when Lou Pinella wondered who the heck this guy was. All he did was roll over grounders to second base throughout spring training. And then all of a sudden, what they won 116 games on, on Ishiro's watch, and he was, he was the next best thing, and all the hits and amazing plays and big arm. So I guess we shouldn't judge spring training, you know, one man in spring training that maybe just anticipate he'll be much better come April. Yeah, I think that's always, that's what they always say, don't fall in love in the spring, so, or September. Uh, John Shea, as always, a pleasure August, to have you December. on Shea Plus. It's a, my favorite segment, I think, every week, and I look forward to it. So we will talk to you again in another week. Well, thanks a lot, Susan. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is The Third by Anatech, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by me and Fernando Diaz. For more A's coverage, you can follow me on Twitter, at Susan Slusser. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com. <laughs>